Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 189. Today is June 13th, 2016. I'm your host, John Pagliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. I'm going to dedicate today's episode to answering some of the listener questions that have piled up. So we'll get right to those in a minute. I do want to start off with a really quick uh, market overview, and this is just a really quick snapshot. The reason I'm doing this is because I, I keep receiving a lot of questions about how likely this market is to fall apart, and then with the terrorist activity we saw over the weekend. That's frightened a lot of people. If you've been paying attention to the Main Street financial news, you'll also see that a lot of uh, hedge fund luminaries and then people like George Soros have commented about how they've sold stocks and they're worried about a bear market. So a lot of people are really worried about this market falling apart. As you know, I've been concerned for the last probably 18 months, 24 months. I've been very cautious since we saw the market run up so high in 2013. That doesn't mean I stay out of the market. That just means that I take a very tactical approach. It means that I put more of my money in cash reserves over the last 18 months for sure. Definitely the last 8 to 10 months, I've traded much less than I normally would. I would say probably less than I have you know, in my whole career of trading. But again, that doesn't mean that I totally avoid the market. What I want to mention is, is that this market does not have to fall apart. Yes, I'm very pessimistic about it. Yes, I'm very concerned. I do think that this market is totally induced by quantitative easing, central bank intervention, huge deficit spending, massive leveraging of debt from you know, consumers and governments, a lot of balance sheet engineering, corporate buybacks, all kind of malinvestments. But at the same time, as long as those things continue, the market can continue to go up. As I've stated before, you know, we're sort of in a Goldilocks economy right now with oil around $50 a barrel. That keeps these small uh, shale oil type players from going out of business. Interest rates are so low, it keeps juicing the system. While I don't necessarily think any of these things are good, nor do I know if they'll last, it is moving the economy along. It's keeping Wall Street, as far as the S&P 500, near all-time record highs. We saw that in spite of the fact of a major one-shooter terrorist attack over the weekend, I think it's been uh, claimed to be the, the largest individual mass shooting in the U.S. history. Well, in spite of that, the market was very resilient today. It held up quite well. The S&P is right around its 50-day moving average, getting support there. I think the Dow and the uh, NASDAQ had on their charts in front of me, but I think last time I looked, they were slightly below their 50-day moving average. The Russell 2000, while it has come down quite a bit in the past few sessions, it's significantly above its 50-day moving average. So all these things just show us how resilient this market is. Does that mean it'll continue? I have no idea. As I've mentioned before, what does give me some optimism and kind of looking at the glass as being half full rather than half empty is that there is so much pessimism. I'm a contrarian by nature. I have to keep that under control. But right now, I do want to take a little bit of a contrarian viewpoint. With so many people being negative and bearish on this market, I mean, the bad news bears are just everywhere. That leads me to take a contrarian viewpoint and say, hey, the market may go up before it goes down. In any case, none of us can know whether this market will go on to make new highs or whether it'll fall apart and drop down to 1600 on the S&P 500. All we can do is look at past history. We can look at trends. We can look at price volume relationships. You know I'm a big believer in looking at moving averages. 
but none of those things let us predict the future. And whenever you see a supposed expert or some kind of talking head in the media, or even if it's your brother-in-law you know, at dinner, and this person is claiming that they just know for sure that we're going to go into recession, or they know that the dollar is going to collapse, or they know that Bitcoin's going to go to $1,000, or gold's going to go to $2,000, or whatever, the S&P 500 is going to go up 20%. Whatever these people claim to know, they have no way of knowing that. And so you should be very, very cautious when you hear people try to predict the future like that. My approach here at the Wealthsteading Podcast is, is to do what I've talked about in the first 10 episodes of this podcast. That's what I call the wealth building principles. I look for trends, and those are both trends in the marketplace caused by things like human nature, fear and greed, as well as trends that are caused by nature or by the interaction of governments. I believe in focusing on earning and saving before I put a lot of emphasis on investing. I think investing is the last thing you do because if you're going to take the time to do it, you need to make sure that you have a big shovel. If you have a little teeny nest egg, then it doesn't matter how good of an investor you are or how lucky you get. It's not going to make any difference. I also take the approach that I'm the dumbest guy in the market. I realize that every time I make a trade, there's somebody probably smarter than me on the other end of that trade. And so I have to ask myself, if I'm long, why are they short? Or if I'm short, why are they long? And so that causes me to very much think out my positions, try and rationalize them, look at all these indicators we've talked about. But at the same time, I don't have unwavering faith in my models or in my algorithms or in my, you know, my predictions or my forecast. They're simply educated guesses. When they fall apart, I try and cut my losses off so that I don't have a catastrophic loss. When I'm concerned that we're at a market top or some type of a pullback, like I think we're in right now, well, I don't go 100% into the market. I keep a big cash reserve. These are strategies that I use to try and mitigate risk. That's my philosophy that's worked out well for me over the last 30-some years of investing. And for now, I'm going to stick with that until I find a better way to invest. In any case, this is a resilient market. Yes, it's brittle. Yes, it could fall apart 25% tomorrow. But on the other hand, it could also bounce up 4 5 6% from here. No one has any way of knowing. Take my well-steading principles. Apply them as best as you can. Take calculated risks, but do everything you can to avoid a catastrophic loss. Anyways, hey, enough of all this. Let's jump into some listener questions. I do want to say that if you don't hear your exact question, well, in fact, you're not going to hear your exact question. What I do is as questions come in, I put them into general categories, and then I do an episode like this, or I dedicate a, a specific episode or a part of an episode to answering that general question. Sometimes you'll get a reply back from me, other times you won't. I remember, uh, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, a few months ago, it was like a Saturday night. My family was all gone. I was home alone. I was playing on my ham radio, and a listener had emailed me, and we went back and forth for, I don't know, 30 minutes or so debating his email. That kind of thing does happen. On the other hand, though, I received so many emails that I, you know, I don't even try to respond to everybody anymore. I, I definitely read them but I just don't even make an effort to reply. And again, unless you catch me at a time where I happen to have some free time on my hands or perhaps it's some uh, topic that I'm passionate about that I, that I want to get back to you on, or maybe you tick me off and I shoot you back a sarcastic answer. 
who knows when you email me it's just like the stock market you never know what type of return you're gonna get or if you're gonna get any return at all so there it is hey let's jump into the first question so the first listener question has to do with paying off a loan early now I, I receive a lot of questions around this you know it could be student loans it could be a car debt it could be a mortgage let me tell you my general thoughts on debt well you know my general thoughts on debt I'm not opposed to it I think you need to use it wisely I use credit cards all the time but I pay my debt off at the end of the month I never put anything on a credit card that I don't have the money to pay for with cash it's just more convenient for me to use a credit card at this point in my life I no longer have a mortgage I've chosen to take assets that I would have otherwise say invested in the stock market and I move that allocation of my portfolio into my real estate portfolio which happens to be you know part of the real estate that I live in that gives me diversification that gives me safety you know could I put that money to work somewhere else yes but it also helps me to sleep safe at night knowing that my home is paid for that's just a personal choice that I do when it comes to debt I think the more of it you take on is a matter of slavery you're giving up your freedom even when these debts are at lower interest rates they can still eat away at your capital and I really don't even care so much about the interest rate you know for example if you have a, a cell phone a, you know monthly reoccurring cell phone bill or Netflix or cable TV or internet access whatever those are you know those aren't truly debts but I consider them debts because they're obligations that you've taken on and they're just more and more of your monthly spending and your monthly consumption now they, those don't have interest rates associated with them but they're still debt because they're things that you consume every month that you promise to pay for I think you need to look at all aspects of those areas of your life look at them wisely and say do I need to be consuming at this level to me the danger of using credit cards isn't the fact that you're paying maybe 18 percent interest on the debt but it's also the fact that you're just consuming more than you should be so even if you only had a half a percent of interest on your credit card debt you know if it's encouraging you to go out and spend beyond your means then in my opinion that's stupid because eventually it's going to catch up with you so debt is really all about lifestyle choices you can compare it to you know being on a diet or, or watching what you eat if you just go on a diet for a short period of time well that's not really going to affect your overall weight you have to make a lifestyle change managing and controlling how much you spend and your debt is the same way so as far as the original question you know should you pay off your credit card debt should you pay off your car debt should you pay off your student loan well my thought on that is yes you probably should and look at it this way look at the interest rates you're paying you know on your student loan maybe you're paying three four ten percent interest I don't know what they are you know your car could be the same way which you have to ask yourself when you pay that debt off you're immediately taking that interest rate and paying yourself back on the money so for example let's say you have a six percent car loan if you pay that off early you're saving yourself six percent on that money so ask yourself are you good enough of an investor to go out in the stock market and guarantee that you're gonna make at least six percent on your investment well you're probably not you know if you look at some years yes 2013 the market did extremely well it was up about 30 percent but as you hear me keep harping go back to the year 2000 or even the year 1999 for the last 16 plus years the average annual rate on the S&P S&P the, the rate of return including dividends has only been about four percent if you go out right now and buy a 10-year Treasury bond which is the safest place you can put your money you're only going to be getting 1.6 percent and you're going to be tying your money up for 10 years 
So while interest rates are extremely low, and that's both in terms of whether you're borrowing money or whether you're loaning money, interest rates are low either way, but that shouldn't cause you to go on and take on unnecessary debt because you're still paying that interest rate even if it's low. So should you pay down your home loan? Should you pay down your car loan? Should you pay down your student loan debt? Dave Ramsey would tell you to pay off the smallest debt first. Don't worry about the interest rate charged because it has to do more with psychology than about balance sheets. If you pay off those small debts first, you'll feel better about it. Then you can roll that money over and attack the next debt. I think that's a great strategy. And I think you have to ask yourself overall, what's your end game? Do you want to die broke, which is some people's strategy? Or do you, at some point in your life before you die, want to be financially independent? If you keep on taking debt, if you keep on consuming more than you earn, you're never going to be financially independent. So what's your strategy? What's your game plan? Do you want financial freedom or do you want to be a slave? It's simply your choice. Now, this leads me to some other questions that kind of tag on of this one. And that's really, well, you know, when should I pay off this debt? When should I start making extra payments? And that's when you have enough extra money. You should always be funding your emergency fund first. So that's why I say you want to earn, then you want to save, then you want to invest. So your emergency fund is that money that you initially start saving when you're earning. So the question I always get is, how big should my emergency fund be? Well, again, let's look at the end game. If you want to be financially independent, then your emergency fund should be something like 20 or more years of expenses. And you're saying, what, John? What are you, crazy? No, that's what the end game is. That's how I define financial independence. I kind of broadly say, well, you're financially independent when you have at least 10 years of living expenses saved up. That's why you're independent, because you wouldn't have to work for the next 10 years if you didn't want to. Now, people that are in that situation don't quit working. They generally like what they do, and so they continue working. And then that's how they get more and more wealth. And that's why they have 15 or 20 or 30 years of, of living expenses saved up. That's the principle of wealth steading. Now, of course, that emergency fund just isn't sitting in a bank account, not collecting anything. When you have a significant amount, like 5, 10, 20 years of, of living expenses saved up, that's when you deploy it into other things. You put some of it in the stock market. You put some of it in real estate. And that some of it in real estate may be in the form of owning your own home. You could be investing in your small business, maybe loaning to your children so they can start their own small business. That's what you do when you have these large nest eggs that you're putting to work for yourself. You want that money to work for you. But you really need to think of your wealth as your overall emergency fund. So how large should it be? Well, hopefully it someday gets to be 20 or 30 years of living expenses. But for now, it should be whatever you can put away. I mean, if you don't have $10 saved up, then you need to save $10. When you get to 10, you need to put away 20. You have to build that up until you get to a point where you have three months, six months, 12 months of living expenses saved up. That's your initial emergency fund. That's kept in some place safe like in a bank account or a checking account where you have it laddered in certificates of deposit. Listen, who cares if you're not getting any interest on it? That money is for an emergency. You want it to be there when your tire blows out in your car and you need a new tire, or when your transmission goes out, or when the shingles blow off the roof of your house, or when you temporarily lose your job, or when you get sick and you have a large deductible to pay for your health insurance. That money needs to be there and it needs to be readily available. That's why you keep it someplace safe. So start out saving whatever you can. 
build it up to three months, six months, a year of living expenses. And then maybe when it's after that, you start putting more money away in things like your 401k or your Roth IRA, other places where you can shelter that money to where it can be tax advantaged. And if you do that long enough and you make enough money and you save a great deal of what you earn and you learn to become a good investor, then someday that nest egg will be so large that you'll have 10, 15, 20 years of living expenses saved up. And that takes us to the next question that I always get. And that's when, when do I become an investor? Because you'll hear me say you have to earn, then you have to save, and then and only then you become an investor. Well, my thought on that is that you need to have a big shovel. You need to have a big nest egg saved up to make it worthwhile to put the time and effort into learning about investing to have it pay off. If you have $10,000 and you get a 10% return, which isn't likely for you to do on a long-term basis, that's only $1,000. It's going to take a lot of time and effort to earn that 10% unless you just get lucky once or twice. So when you have a small amount of money, put that effort into things that pay off. Get a better education or better training so that you can get a better job so you can make more per hour or so that you can charge more per job or so that you can start a company or your own small business or so you can get a raise or you know whatever it is. That's where you want to put your effort when you're not earning very much. That's why I say start off with the earning part of that equation. Then the other part is the savings part. Listen, if you have $10,000 and you get a 10% interest on it, you made $1,000. Well, when you become a disciplined saver, you're saving a great deal more than just $1,000 a year. So what's going to make the most impact on your net worth? Is it going to be trying to get a, a bigger return on your $10,000 or is it going to be having the discipline to buckle down and not be such a consumer and save more of your income? Well, I think it's more likely that you're going to build your net worth faster by becoming a disciplined saver than you are by becoming a great investor. So work on that part first. Then and only then start worrying about investing. So what should that nest egg be before you start investing? I don't know exactly. Think about it, though. It's got to be spinning off more money than you're saving. So that's probably something in the neighborhood of, you know, at least $70,000, certainly more than $50,000 saved up, and, and I would think up and onwards towards $100,000. Now, you may be starting out with only $1,000 in your emergency fund, and you're thinking, well, I'm never going to get to $100,000. And if you have that kind of attitude, you're right. You never are. So don't even worry about being an investor. And on the other hand, if you think that I'm full of BS and that, you know, you can become Warren Buffett by investing your first $1,500 in stocks, well, go ahead and try it. I bet you're going to lose more than you make. And that's the dirty little secret that the investment industry doesn't want you to know. They want you to believe you're an investor so that they can charge you fees. Don't believe that myth. You need to have a substantial nest egg before you start putting time and effort into worrying about buying stocks and buying mutual funds and all these different things. Okay, so that takes us to the next question. Where should I be putting this money, you know, when I'm saving it, but you still don't have a significant amount? You know, you don't have 50000 or seventy-five or or 100000 You know, what should you be doing with that money? Well, like we just discussed, once you get that initial emergency fund set up and you've got three, six months, 12 months of expenses in a safe place, like a checking account or a savings account, then you can start doing more with your money. If you work for a company that has a 401k program and they match your contributions, then you should be contributing at least as much as that match. Why is that? Well, think about it. If you put in a dollar and they put in a dollar, well, you just got a 100% return on your money. So why would you give up that free money? 
do it. Meet that match. Now, beyond meeting the match in a 401k plan, I generally don't like 401k programs because they're too restrictive. That's in my opinion. I don't think they give you a broad enough opportunity to buy really good quality individual stocks and highly liquid exchange traded funds. They generally just make you buy mutual funds. And a lot of times they restrict when you can trade. You know, for example, they'll only let you trade in and out of a fund every six weeks or every 30 days or something. I don't like that. I'm an adult. I think that I can make my own investment decisions. So generally for myself, if I was in the position where I had a company sponsored 401k, I would contribute as much as my company was matching. And then I would take the other part of my savings and I would put it into a tax deferred account, preferably a Roth IRA. I like those because those are not tax deferred. Those are tax free. Your money will grow tax free. Once you retire and you take that money out, you pay zero taxes on it. Now, you do pay taxes on it up front. It goes in there without any type of tax deduction or advantage, but it grows tax-free. And if you've got 10 or 15 or 30 years to let that money grow, I think you're much better off putting it in a Roth IRA. If you can't contribute to that because um, you make too much money or if you do want to get the tax deduction, then go with the IRA. That's fine. But remember, in your early phases, when you're contributing to that 401k and you're contributing to your Roth or your IRA and you only have a small amount of money, well, you're not an investor. You're a saver, but that's okay. You can put money in your 401k or your Roth IRA and not approach it from an investment standpoint, but, but look at it as a savings account. It's a place where you're putting your money away, you're learning to be a disciplined saver, and you're putting it as something safe. Safe, meaning a cash equivalent might be appropriate for you, something like a money market fund, something like a very short-term government bond fund. Now, again, you're going to say, but John, those things aren't paying any interest. So what? You're also not going to lose it. And if you're a young person or even if you're an old person and you don't have any investment experience or if the investment experience you have had has been a losing proposition, then why take the chance of investing it when you don't know what you're doing with it? Put it in the money market fund. Put it in the short-term government bond fund. Let it build and grow until that nest egg is sufficient that it gets to be up around 50 or 75 or $100,000. Because then when you take the effort to invest it, you're going to be making some significant returns. 10% return on $10,000 is only $1,000. A 10% return on $100,000 is $10,000. You'll get more bang for your buck when your nest egg is bigger. You'll also take a greater uh, responsibility and appreciation for what you're doing when you're dealing with a larger sum of money. If you only have $1,000 and you go out and say, hey, I'm going to buy Tesla stock because I think that's a good idea. Well, you may lose half of that. You don't really think about it. It becomes more emotional because of you, know, you read something great about Tesla or you think it's the way of the future or whatever. And so you can frivolously go out and, and you know, put $1,000 into that company. But if you're investing $50,000, $100,000 of your hard-earned savings that it took you years or decades of disciplined savings to, to build that amount up, well, then I think you're going to take a more mature and a more calculated risk with that money, and you're less likely to do stupid things with it. That's the way it is when it's your own money. I was driving one of my son's cars the other day. I picked it up for him, and when I dropped it off for him, he got in, he started it up, and he looked at me and said, Dad, you got the air conditioning on full blast. You know, why are you wasting my, my gasoline that way? I want to get better gas mileage. I don't use my air conditioning. Now, see, my son didn't think that way when he was a teenager and he was driving my family car and Dad was paying for the gas. 
But now that my son is an adult and he has his own car and he purchases his own gasoline, well, he's more frugal with that money. You'll be the same way when you have a large nest egg. Chances are you're not going to go do something stupid with it and invest it in some stock that you heard, you know, pumped up or promoted on a podcast or on a cable news network. And you're not going to throw all your money into one thing. You're going to diversify it. You're going to split it up. You're not going to put more than 5 or 10% of your assets into any one stock. Those are all things you do when you're a mature investor and when you have fifty, seventy-five, dollars $100,000. When you only have $1,500, you don't have enough to diversify it. So you, you put it all in that one mutual fund that you think is just going to hit a home run. Or you put it all in that one stock because that's all you can afford to buy. Well, generally, those are dumb ideas. Don't become an investor until you're ready. That takes us to another related question. I'll hear from people that, again, have a very small amount of money. And they'll say, John, I bought into you know, this mutual fund, or I bought this particular stock, or you know, I, I took the advice of the general financial media, and I just invested in this index exchange-traded fund or mutual fund, and, and I've been in it for six months, and, and I'm down 1%, or I, I haven't made any money, or I've only made $10, or, or whatever. Listen, if you're, quote, buying and holding, then you're doing that for the long term. And I don't have any problem with that, particularly when you don't have a lot of money. If you're young and you're saying, hey, I got another 25 or 30 years before I touch this money, and I know it's only $5,000, but I'm going to put it in a, a broadly diversified, low-cost mutual fund, or you know, I'm going to put it into an ETF that invests in the S&P 500, and I'm just going to keep dollar cost averaging into it until I learn what I'm doing, and until it gets built up to 50 or 75 or $100,000, well, that's fine. But you know, you're not an investor when you do that. Again, you're just saving and you're taking on additional risk than if you would be putting that into something safer like short-term government bonds or a money market fund. But that's okay. You're young. You can take that, that uh, element of risk. You're not really talking about that much money anyways because it's only five or $10,000. It's not going to ruin your life if the market suddenly drops 48% over the next six months and you know your, your $5,000 goes down to $2,300. Okay? It isn't going to be devastating to you. You may not like it. Emotionally, you may be mad about that. But in the scheme of things, that's an insignificant loss because it's only a couple thousand dollars. On the other hand, if you're 65 and you don't know what you're doing and you're you know, putting your life savings of $500,000 into the S&P because you just think that you're supposed to keep it in there for the long term and buy and hold, and if the market happens to go down 25% or 48% or whatever over the next six months, then it isn't something that you can easily recover from. So determine what situation you're in. If you're young or you're new to investing and you just have a small amount of money and you're taking the risk of putting that in a broadly diversified mutual fund or if you're putting it into an exchange traded fund that invests in the S&P 500 like, like SPY, well, if you're doing that, hey, you're taking a calculated risk. And if over a one-month period of time or a six-month or even a 24-month period of time, if you end up a little negative or behind, so what? That's the risk you took. If that's keeping you awake at night, then you definitely aren't an investor. You shouldn't have your money in that. Put that money in a money market fund. Put that money in a short-term government bond fund. I get so passionate about this because I hear from so many people that don't have any money that worry about these little ups and downs in the market when, again, they shouldn't, they're not an investor. They should be a saver. They should be focusing on their emergency fund or just building up their savings account. 
Forget about taking these risks with your money that you don't know anything about. Put it someplace safe. Okay, so that takes me to a question I've gotten a lot of uh, requests about, and that's, you know, what do I think about robo-advisors? Well, what do I think about Wall Street products in general? Well, I think they're misleading. And like I've just been talking about here, I think they try and tell you you're an investor when you're not, when you should be a saver. So these things that are robo-advisors, and these are really marketed heavily to the millennials to kind of pull at their emotions and say, oh, this is for people that know about technology, and this is something that they can readily access on their smartphone, and, uh, you know, they're such sophisticated investors. No, they're not. If they were sophisticated investors, they wouldn't be using robo-advisors. Go on and log on to some of those systems. Try them out. If you like them, fine. Use them. But here's what I see with them. They asked you three or four questions, maybe five. And then from that, they're supposedly going to invest wisely for you and keep you out of trouble. Well, in my opinion, this is no different than putting your money into one of those targeted date retirement funds that they pitch to you in your 401k plan. You know, if you're going to uh, retire in the year 3037, you should put your money in, into this fund. To me, that's ridiculous. There's no one algorithm that's going to work out perfectly in every market. There's no law carved in stone that says that based on your particular age and your investing style that you should be in so many stocks or so many bonds or that a percentage of your portfolio should be in this many biotechs or in, or in this many utility funds. That's rubbish. Markets change from day to day. Markets change because it's the interaction of over 7 billion people on the face of this earth. So a simple algorithm or a robo-advisor or a targeted retirement date fund, in my humble opinion, they're all just marketing schemes. I wouldn't rely on them. I personally think that you're better off just doing a traditional buy and hold and investing in the broad uh, stock market or specifically in the S&P 500, some kind of an index fund. I think the danger of using a robo-advisor is that it gives you a false sense of security. You think that someone has your back and they, and they probably don't. Now, I am going to say that I don't think it's any worse than using most financial advisors because I'm very skeptical. I'm very cynical of the products that Wall Street creates and packages. I think they're more interested in them earning fees and not in helping their clients. It's just my own personal opinion. But I look at robo-advisors this way. I think more and more of the market will go that way. It's definitely a more efficient way to do it. You'll, you'll definitely pay lower fees, or at least you should be paying lower fees that way. I don't think you'll get any worse advice than if you use a human in most cases. And I think the financial industry is going to go that direction because it's very expensive for Wall Street to pay human advisors to lie to you when they can get computers and algorithms and robo-advisors to lie to you for free. So expect to see more of that promoted on Wall Street. Personally, I'd avoid it. I think a good way to sum up robo-advisors is that if that's the only financial advice you can afford, then that's how you know that you're still a saver and not an investor. So that takes me to the next topic, which is related, and that's for people that don't want to use robo-advisors, or if they do, uh, you know, even just general brokerage accounts. What, which discount broker is best? Hey, these are like Chevys and Fords and Lexus and BMWs and Teslas. It's all based on pre personal preference, what type of service you want to get out of it, and what you can afford. Like I just mentioned, if all you can afford is a robo-advisor, then that's a good indication in my opinion, that you're not an investor and you should just be focusing on saving. If, on the other hand, you do have $50,000, dollars $100,000, you start moving into that category of being an investor, 
Well, while that may seem like a significant amount of money to you, it's not enough to buy top talent on Wall Street to manage your money. So if you think that you're going to be able to take that money and send it off to a guy like Warren Buffett and have him manage it for you and do it on a personal level, it's not going to happen. So you have to go to a lesser service provider. That's where discount brokers come into play. In my experience, there isn't a great deal of difference between them. Most of them will offer you some initial free trades. Um, they almost all, I, I believe, have a demo website. So go out to E-Trader, go out to Schwab, or go out to TD Ameritrade, or, or even try out some of those robo-advisors. Do whatever you want to do. Mo most of the discount brokers are now incorporating robo-advisor options into them. Go out, visit their websites, see what the trading platform is like, find out how much they're going to charge you per trade. So find one that you like, learn their trading platform, learn how to use their system, and just stick with it. The great thing about using a discount broker is there's so many of them, you don't get locked into any one of them. If you don't like it, you take your business somewhere else. All right, now let me just finish up on this last question. I receive a lot of questions about people wanting to know what I'm doing with my portfolio, people asking me specific things about, you know, am I still long on this particular stock or whatever. Well, a couple things. Number one, remember, I never make specific recommendations or offer advice on this podcast. I just speak broadly. I do tell you the trades that I'm invested in. I try and give you some logic and some rationale for them. What I would like you to learn from this podcast when I talk about individual trades is how that best fits into your mindset. What type of a trader are you? Are you someone that should just be buying and holding mutual funds? Are you someone that can invest in individual stocks? Are you someone that should maybe go on and do advanced things, maybe use protective puts or covered calls? Hopefully by listening to the Wellsteading podcast, you'll get an idea of what I do, and then you can apply it to your own trading method. Now, for those of you that actually do follow specifically the things that I'm doing, or you try and make some of the same trades I do, well, rest assured, if I trade in or out of that stock, you know, if I buy an ETF or I sell an ETF, I will post about it, I'll blog about it over at my firm's website, investablewealth.com. You can subscribe to that for free and get email notifications when I update it. You can just go there and read it on your own when you want to. I don't post a lot. I don't consider myself a blogger. I only put things out there that I think are relevant, but I will do my best to always keep that up to date. And as soon as I make that trade and I have the opportunity to go and update that blog post, I will do it. Sometimes it's going to be before the market closes that day. It may be after. Now, I'm not going to come on every episode of this podcast and give you updates about those positions. That would be boring to the listeners that don't care about my individual positions. Or, you know, you may find this hard to believe, but a lot of listeners to this podcast don't care anything about the stock market. They like the general wealth building principles, not specifically about investing. And so, as a courtesy to those that don't care about my individual positions, and then also, I've said this before, I don't want to be a podcast that's only about trading. That's not the intent of this podcast. So I will most likely only reference or update the positions that I'm in when something has changed. For example, when I decide to close the position, or if something happens drastically in the marketplace, that even if I'm holding the position and there's a big change, I may talk about it. Walmart is a good example of that. I've held Walmart stock for, I don't know, something like 10 months now. I don't talk about it on every episode because my initial thoughts and opinions from 10 months ago haven't changed that much. I continue to be long Walmart. As market conditions change, I'll probably talk about them. You can rest assured when I actually do sell Walmart, 
I'll put it over on the investablewealth.com website. So I think that's enough questions for today. I'll wrap things up for this episode. As you can tell, the questions that I receive are, are nothing new. They're just things that we discuss over and over again in the last nearly 190 episodes. The well-steading lifestyle is very repetitive. It isn't something where things drastically change from day to day. These are principles that I've learned over 30-plus years. I don't think they're going to drastically change. For those of you that have been listening since episode one, I hope this wasn't too repetitive, but you have to remember that every day we gain new listeners to this podcast, and so there is going to be some element of repetition. In any case, until the next episode, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.